this is our second event in, in this building and in this room. And last year we had an event on the neurosciences with uh, Fondation Maison de Sciences de Lyon. And uh, thankfully, uh, they're hosting us today as well. So you can learn about our events and upcoming courses and everything about us. You can read our manifesto on our website, so everything is there. So I'm not going to give you a huge French talk about our institute, like David did last, yeah, yesterday. Yeah. So this is the, this is the <laughs> uh, website, parisinstitute.org, uh, where you can actually learn about our events. And then also, you can also subscribe through the uh, website to our newsletter. And uh, Christoph, a beloved friend, and a colleague, philosopher, he's going to be introducing our uh, honorary lecturer today. So. so it's my pleasure to introduce to you uh, Jonathan Ray, our speaker of tonight. Jonathan doesn't like really formal presentations, so I will keep it really short. He's a historian and a philosopher. He used to be professor of philosophy at Middlesex University, and he was obviously the co one of the co-founders of Radical Philosophy, which was and still is one of the most interesting journals in the English-British uh, countryside. We brought him here to celebrate his latest book, Whitcraft, the Invention of Philosophy in English. And although Whitcraft is a lovely title, it could have been Witchcraft as well, because writing a 600-page long book of history of philosophy in such a wonderful way, it needs a piece of magic to do that. Tonight, he will delight us with a presentation entitled Wittgenstein and the History of Philosophy. So here's the word to you, Jonathan. Thank you. Some people like to make a distinction between knowing about a topic and knowing what it's about. For example, knowing about music, you know all the Mozart Kirchel numbers, but you have no sense of how a piece of music ought to go. Or being able to identify all the works of Rembrandt, but not having any sense of what their artistic purpose is. And in the same way, it's often said that there are two kinds of philosopher. Those who know about philosophy and those who know what philosophy is about. Um, and I, what's more, the distinction has been massively mobilised for the last 100 years, or more than 100 years. In fact, you might say that it was weaponized by phenomenologists and analytical philosophers at the beginning of the 20th century, who saw themselves as kind of philosophical freedom fighters, intent on liberating philosophy from the stultifying cult of ancestor worship, uh, which was the history of philosophy and which was so much part of the induction into philosophical culture. And in a way, they obviously had a point. A lot of work on the history of philosophy is philosophically incredibly uninteresting. But I believe that if you look more closely at their arguments, you'll see that there's something deeply flawed in them. That the idea that there's a tension between practicing philosophy in the present and studying the philosophy of the past, or that it's a kind of zero-sum game, uh, is, I think, invalid, confused, and broken-backed. At least that's what I'm going to try and convince you of today. And I'm going to do it in a kind of dialogue with one of those philosophers who did polemicise a lot against studying the history of philosophy, namely Ludwig Wittgenstein. When he was a fashionable young student in Cambridge, 
before the First World War. Wittgenstein made a very strong impression at some student parties by denouncing all the philosophers of the past, all the philosophers of the past, as stupid and ignorant and guilty of masses of disgusting mistakes. And the reason Wittgenstein was so sure of himself was that he was working with Bertrand Russell on Gottlob Frege and the foundations of logic. And he was convinced that Frege and Russell had devised what he called a new method, a new method in philosophy which was leading to an intellectual revolution comparable, as he put it, to the transition from alchemy to chemistry. So in 1912, philosophy could put its unscientific past behind it and any serious philosopher need no longer bother with anything that had been written before then. Before long, Wittgenstein modified his attitude a bit. He was, he'd been impressed by some translations of Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard on silence, that he found in an avant-garde Austrian journal in 1914. And then as a prisoner of war in Italy in 1919, he worked his way through Kant's critique of pure reason with a fellow prisoner and found that it was quite impressive. He said, um, it might be a bit mad, but it was not completely bad. So Kant wasn't the complete disgusting mistake that he'd assumed. And on top of that, reading Kant alerted him to the fact that contemporary philosophers who boast about moving from ancient metaphysical darkness to modern scientific enlightenment are, ironically enough, actually singing an old 18th century song because that's exactly the sort of thing that Kant had been saying in the 1790s. And ten years later, when he encountered... Uh, the neo-positivists of the Vienna Circle, he mocked them for their excited talk of a renunciation of metaphysics. Renunciation of metaphysics, he said, as if there was anything new in that. In other words, the idea of repudiating philosophy's past is one of the motifs of philosophy's, um, of actual philosophy going back for many centuries. By the end of his life, uh, Wittgenstein died in 1951 at the age of 62. By the end of his life, he'd become sufficiently eclectic to admit that some classic philosophers were admirable and even lovable, particularly Plato, who, well, Wittgenstein found his formal arguments rather annoying, but he did say that he was brilliant and inspiring in his use of images, parables and metaphors. So, <coughs> so you could say the general picture is that Wittgenstein eventually moderated his youthful extremism. But still, he did go on reiterating his dislike of the history of philosophy right to the end of his life. And I want now to consider what he might have meant by that, what he, what he meant by the history of philosophy. So far, I've been equating history of philosophy with the corpus of philosophical texts handed down from the past which could be seen either as a sort of relatively arbitrary selection or anthology, or as a canon, that's to say, a list of the unassailable classics of the discipline which it's compulsory to read if you're going to issue judgments about it, say, uh, Hegel, Kant, Locke, Descartes, Aristotle and Plato. But history of philosophy can also, as Wittgenstein was beginning to learn, mean something more, namely a narrativization of this canon, what Ricoeur would have called a mise en intrigue, putting the texts in chronological order and stringing them together to tell a story with a beginning and a middle and, of course, a satisfying denouement at the end, 
uh, everything leading up to the present in some way. Now, there's a lot to be said about the history of histories of philosophy of this kind. I will keep it very brief, though. The earliest histories of philosophy in this sense, telling a story in three epochs, was a Greek and Roman antiquity, a dark Middle Age, and then modernity. They go back to the 17th century, and books of this kind, narrative histories of philosophy, which lay claim to a continuous tradition starting in ancient Greece, achieved considerable, considerable popularity in the 18th century, after which they were incorporated through textbooks and lecture courses into the very foundations of philosophy as a university discipline. And they've remained there ever since, exercising, if I'm right, an enormous but unacknowledged hegemony over the discipline. They perform, as you might put it, a kind of ideological function, providing a comforting myth of origins for philosophers and tacitly defining for them the nature of philosophy, its scope and limits and aims. Because they tell us not only that it has a three-part history beginning in ancient Greece, but also that that history is about the titanic clashes between great philosophers, each of whom was possessed of a unique philosophical system. Um, and, of course, one of the effects of this is to leave all the rest of us out of it, because it, it's such a common experience to look at a history of philosophy and think, all these brilliant people disputed these things for, for 2,000 years, and they didn't come to a conclusion, so what hope do I have to make any progress with it myself. Now, an important thing about Wittgenstein was that he was trained as an engineer rather than a philosopher. And he kind of got into philosophy sort of sideways. And he was in the unusual position of being a philosopher in complete innocence of what the histories of philosophy said about philosophy as a series of battles. And perhaps he never even looked at such a history until his former friend and now enemy, Russell, published a money-spinning history of Western philosophy in 1945. But Wittgenstein will already have lost his innocence about the history of philosophy when he started teaching, teaching undergraduates in Cambridge, in, started in 1929. And he gave it his course, um, he refused to call it anything except philosophy. Um, and students would come to it and he would proceed really just by asking them questions, strange questions like, why do you think it is that the colour blue seems closer to the colour green than the colour red? And then you see, and it's, it's actually quite an interesting, because then you think, <laughs> you know, is that just a matter of language that they're like that? Is it the matter of experience? Is it necessary like that? Might it be different? Anyway, he, those were the sorts of questions that he got. I mean, rather than what do you think, in what respect do you think Hegel advanced on Kant? That was, that was his, his typical kind of question. But the students, obviously, were being taught by people other than Wittgenstein, and in particular, they were being taught by a character called C.D. Broad, who gave very reassuringly schematic lectures, very slowly, so you could take a note on every word, on philosophy from Descartes to Hegel. And although they were known to be very dull, they were also very clear, and they were known to pay off very handsomely, handsomely in the Cambridge exams. So people went to Broad's lectures and learnt about the big issues between Descartes and Hegel, and then they came to Wittgenstein's classes. 
And I think that's how Wittgenstein started to learn about this way of thinking about philosophy, where you weren't just tackling issues head-on, but tackling it via the history of philosophy. And he started issuing warnings to his students, saying that they would not be able, I'm quoting here, not be able to take philosophy seriously as long as it was presented to them in the form of history of philosophy. In fact, as far as he was concerned, there was a fundamental contradiction between the purpose of philosophy and the purpose of histories of philosophy. Philosophy, uh, he thought, and as you may gather, I think he was basically right about this, philosophy was about facing up to snags that have cropped up within your own thought and your own experience. History of philosophy was about studying the thoughts of other people, sort of objectively without getting involved in it. Um, the study of other people's thought, he told his students, could only be a distraction from the cultivation of their own. Um, when one of his students graduated and got a job as a professor of philosophy in America, he wrote me a letter saying, I'm so sorry that you're going to have to do a lot of reading of the history of philosophy. I know that as a professor of philosophy, you've got to pretend to understand what everyone meant. But there are two problems with that, said Wittgenstein. Firstly, struggling with other people's ideas, if you do it conscientiously, is enormously difficult. And secondly, he said, it's not really going to help you clear up your own muddles, which is the reason you got into philosophy in the first place. Now, Wittgenstein's hostility to narrative histories of philosophy seems to me to rest on... Uh, well, I, on his, his sense of what philosophy is about, which I, I call with some hesitation a kind of philosophical individualism. I mean, some hesitation because it's, it's clear that in some ways Wittgenstein's thought was not individualist at all. I mean, he talks about shared, um, shared, shared social practices and shared languages and so on. But I think there is something... I think calling him an individualist about philosophy does capture something of what he was passionate about. For him, as also for Kierkegaard, whom he had started to recommend to his students at this point, for him, as for Kierkegaard, philosophy is a discipline where each of us must make our way on our own. Disciplines like mathematics or physics or history are completely different, he thought, and they can aspire to a certain impersonal rationality, where you know researchers can agree on a shared set of problems and they can work towards agreed solutions, which can they, they can then be confident that can be handed on to the next generation who will take them forward um, further. But, well, Kierkegaard said, thinking that philosophy is like that is thinking that love is like that, that somehow you know, every generation... You know, people have been loving each other ever since human life existed, and so people must be getting much, much better at it. We've had thousands of years of experience. And Kierkegaard says, well, <laughs> it's as likely that you could have progress in philosophy as that you could have progress in, in love, because it's another personal thing. It's a thing where the individual is trying to work things out for themselves. The philosopher is not a citizen of any community of I ideas. Kein Denkgemeinde. Uh, Wittgenstein says, and that, your separation from any common method of thought, is what makes you into a philosopher. Now, that's a quote again. 
So, so in, in some respects, Kierkegaard's individualism about philosophy echoes Kierkegaard, but another aspect is actually more reminiscent of Sigmund Freud. Just as for Freud, the resolution of a neurosis requires us to retrace all the steps by which it was formed, sort of go backward and see how it was formed. So Wittgenstein said, the clearing up of a philosophical muddle requires us to work out exactly how we got into it. Philosophy unties knots in our thinking, as he put it, and the philosophizing has to be as complicated as the knots it unties. He was, Wittgenstein found it incredibly difficult to write, but sometimes he said, you know, I do sometimes make a really good simile. And I think this is one of his really good similes. Philosophy unties knots in our thinking, and the philosophizing has to be as complicated as the knots it unties. Like Freud, Wittgenstein refused to offer advice or quick cures. Instead, he tried to turn himself into a screen. This is very like Freud, or a mirror, Wittgenstein says, in which my reader can see his own thinking with all its deformities, and with this assistance can start to set it in order. And Freud said, very famous phrase, much will be gained if we succeed in transforming your hysterical misery into ordinary unhappiness. And Wittgenstein agreed in the philosophical field. My aim, he said, is to help you pass from a piece of disguised nonsense into something that is patent nonsense. <laughs> and just as Freud found it impossible to work with people who wanted to be clever about their treatment, so too did Wittgenstein. And that I, this, this is one of the great slogans for a philosophy teacher to say. He said this repeatedly in his classes. Do not try to be intelligent. Um, do not try to be intelligent. You must say what you really think as though no one, not even you, was listening. That's to say, because if you try to be, if you try to be intelligent, you can sort of argue, away, argue your way out of a paper bag. You can pretend that something's not a problem. You can, uh, you can provide, all, provide yourself with all sorts of intellectual alibis. And I suppose one, one sort of definition of the Wittgensteinian idea of the value of philosophy is it's when you stop making excuses for yourself philosophically. And if you try to be intelligent, you're going to start making excuses for your folly. What you really need to do is have the sincerity and honesty to face up to it. Don't try to be intelligent. Another student recalled how Wittgenstein got extremely angry with him over some casual comment about the British national character. And Wittgenstein then wrote, sent him a letter. He was very friendly to this, to this guy and gave him lots of money and was really adored him, but they had this huge row and Wittgenstein wouldn't talk to him for a while because he said, if you can just talk about the British national character and how that is going to carry us through the war, that shows that you're not thinking about the meaning of your words or rather the meaninglessness of your words. What's the use of studying philosophy? This is Wittgenstein's letter. What's the use of studying philosophy is if all that it does for you is to enable you to talk with some plausibility about some abstruse questions on logic, etc.? It's certainly difficult to talk about certainty or probability or perception and so on, but it's much more difficult to think or try to think really honestly about your life and other people's lives 
And the trouble is that thinking about these things, though it's all important, is not thrilling. It's often downright nasty. It's uncomfortable. And it's when it's uncomfortable that it's most important. You can't think decently, Wittgenstein said in this letter. You can't think decently if you don't want to hurt yourself. Well, and and again, work on philosophy. Work on philosophy is really work on oneself, as he put it. And what is essential for the activity is courage. Without courage, philosophy will simply be a clever game. Well, I hope you've got some idea of what this conception of the sort of the mission of, of, of philosophy is. And I, it seems to me that you find it throughout Wittgenstein's work. I mean, there's a lot of um, ink has been spilt on the question of what the difference is between the early Wittgenstein and the late Wittgenstein. Um, but this doctrine of what philosophy is, that it's, as he sometimes puts it, that it's an activity, not a theory, um, is present, it's central to his work from beginning to end. In the first place, it was, I'll I'll give you a five-minute tour through Wittgenstein's entire philosophical career, it was implicit in the philosophical revolution for which his early work, the Tractatus, which was written during World War I and published in 1921, It's implicit in the philosophical revolution of the Tractatus. The main claim of the Tractatus was that philosophy must stop pretending that it can analyse the content of our thoughts and start focusing on their form instead. Um, All the propositions of ordinary language are logically completely in order, just as they are, Wittgenstein says in the Tractatus, But the questions and propositions of the philosophers result from the fact that we don't understand the logic of our language. And this leads us into fundamental confusions, confusions which we can't hope to escape without anguish, hard labour, and indeed courage. It followed, as far as Wittgenstein was concerned, that philosophy should no longer pretend to be a theory generating philosophical propositions or systems or positions about the ultimate structure of reality, independent of human experience. It wasn't a theory, but an activity, an activity of clarification that we focus on ourselves. The right method in philosophy, this is the conclusion of the Tractatus, the right method in philosophy would be this. Don't say anything except what can be said, i.e. something that has nothing to do with philosophy, and then always, when someone tries to say something metaphysical, grandly philosophical, demonstrate that he's given no meaning to certain signs in his proposition. This method would be extremely frustrating to the other person. He would not have the feeling that we were teaching philosophy, but it would, in fact, be strictly the only correct method. When Wittgenstein finished writing the Tractatus in 1919, he didn't expect anyone to understand its revolutionary implications, and he couldn't get it published, and he seems to have been genuinely indifferent and even a bit annoyed when his friend Bertrand Russell went to most enormous trouble to get it translated with a parallel English translation in, um, in I think, 1923. Um, but in 1924, when he was working as a schoolteacher in the Austrian Alps, because he thought that was you know, 
all this philosophy would become proved to be such a waste of time. He could do something useful by teaching peasants' children in an elementary school in the Alps. He got a letter from Moritz Schlick, who was professor of the history of science at the University of Vienna. And he told him that he regarded the Tractatus as the book that would finally put philosophy on the right path. It, f- it articulates for the first time in history a wholly clear and rigorous concept of form, as Schleck put it in his letter to Wittgenstein. And it allows logical theory to be established and completely elucidated for all time to come. And I think, I mean, Wittgenstein really thought he'd, he'd solved the problems to his own satisfaction and he wasn't going to bother with it anymore. He wanted to be a schoolteacher. And I think he was, he was ambivalent about receiving this unbelievably high praise from this professor in Vienna. And on the whole, he didn't interfere with Schlick's decision to devote himself to promoting Wittgenstein's philosophy throughout the great universities of the world, while Wittgenstein continued to, I don't know, teach pulleys and steam engines and the dissection of birds and rabbits to the boys and boys and girls in his little school. Um, I was happy to let him get on with it. And for instance, Schlick gave a lecture in Oxford in 1930, which was a kind of anti-historical disquisition on the history of philosophy and Wittgenstein's place in it. Schlick argued that philosophy was entering a new era, thanks to Wittgenstein. It was entering a new era. In the past, it had been full of pitiful failures and vain struggles and futile disputes. But its future is going to be very different from its past. If you sift through the philosophical classics, you'll find that they consist mainly of meaningless combinations of words, which at best amount to contributions to the field of poetry. The philosophy of the future would at last become scientific, but not in the sense of imitating the sciences, but in the sense of recognising that it cannot imitate the sciences. It won't imitate the theoretical sciences, but it will proceed as a practice or activity the activity of clarifying meanings, rather than an attempt to establish timeless truths. From now on, any philosopher whose knowledge was confined to philosophy could be dismissed as an imposter, who doesn't really philosophize, but just talks about history, talks about philosophy or writes a book about it. So that, that's you know, someone who knows all about philosophy and the history of philosophy, but doesn't know what philosophy is all about. Um, Wittgenstein was, according to Schlick, the first one who saw this truth with absolute clearness. And the concluding propositions of the Tractatus about philosophy issuing in clarification of thoughts rather than philosophical propositions were worth more than many a book on metaphysics, Schlick said. And he claimed that the future fate of philosophy depends on Wittgenstein being universally understood. Ah, Wittgenstein... I mean, he wasn't at this lecture, but he must have heard the sorts of things that Schlick was saying about his work. He wasn't, as I've already said, he wasn't very impressed by the idea of moving beyond metaphysics because he thought people had been doing that for hundreds of years. But he didn't actually disagree much with Schlick's um, view of what was happening in philosophy. He continued to believe that his way of philosophizing, or maybe Frege's way of philosophizing, was revolutionary, and he repeated what he'd said many years before, that it broke with philosophy's past in the same way that scientific chemistry broke with pre-scientific alchemy. 
And in particular, he hated the idea which was actually being revived in the 1930s. That philosophers are in possession of a body of accumulated wisdom, which you can consult in the histories of philosophy, a body of accumulated wisdom and which it's the duty of philosophers to lay before the public, um, rather as it's the duty of priests to lay the doctrines of Christianity before their congregations. Um, in January 1940, so just at the beginning of the Second World War, a popular philosopher, he did a lot of journalism and broadcasting, he was called Cyril Jode, and he was world famous, well, he was world famous in Britain, at the time, um, Cyril Jode came to Cambridge to give a public lecture in which he attacked Wittgenstein and the Cambridge philosophers and implored them to return to what he called the classical tradition in philosophy. He invoked, I quote, the wisdom to be garnered from the great philosophies of the past and claimed that it is our duty as philosophers to make it available for the comfort and guidance of our distracted times. Wittgenstein and his friends, according to Jode, had to stop quibbling about, agonising about the correct analysis of meanings, and they needed to start applying themselves to the historically significant task of philosophers, namely increasing virtue amongst their fellow citizens. The public was in dire need of guidance in these difficult times, Jode said. And if Wittgenstein and his friends failed to supply them with ideals to live for and principles to live by, then they were guilty of fiddling while Rome burns. Well, I mean, see sort of where Jode was coming from. He stood for the history of philosophy as a body of wisdom that the, that the population was in need of. And Wittgenstein's whole conception of philosophy is that philosophy is not something you can serve out to people so that they can consume it and ingest it. Ingest it. <coughs> when Wittgenstein was not very much of a public figure in, in Cambridge, but when, he'd finished, when Joad finished the lecture, Wittgenstein rather surprisingly stood up at the back of the room and denounced the whole thing as, he said, a rotten attack. It was foul from beginning to end. Your lecture was foul from beginning to end, he said. And Jode's attempt to denigrate modern philosophy in the name of what he called traditional philosophy reminded him, he said, of a, the attempts of a slum landlord to prevent the replacement of rotten housing with modern homes. That it was so rotten, the kind of philosophy that Jode, that Jode was defending, and it was only out of self-interest that Jode who didn't understand modern philosophy, was trying to defend the old kind as a body of wisdom that the citizens supposedly stood in need of. And when someone tried to calm Joe down by assuring him that no one would ever um, compare this wonderful person to a slum landlord, Wittgenstein got up again and said, that is exactly what I'm suggesting. You're a slum landlord, Joad. Um, well, an unusually vehement intervention by the usually timid Wittgenstein. Anyway, back in his classes, Wittgenstein kept on reminding his students of his idea that no one can get anything out of philosophy if it's presented to them as a fixed body of knowledge or a kind of catechism that they'd better believe but not to reason why. As 
so I've kept reminding them that if philosophy was worth anything, then it involved work on yourself, and you couldn't expect anyone else, not Joad, nor even Plato, to do this work for you. Wittgenstein went on teaching at Cambridge, on and off, until 1947. And while he was now increasingly willing to concede that, as he put it, the great philosophical systems of the past might be amongst the noblest productions of the human mind, he still did not see any need to refer to them in his teaching. Um, Following his death in 1951, friends and students started to publish some of his fragmentary later writings, beginning with the Philosophical Investigations in 1953. And while these texts do reveal a certain change of emphasis from the Tractatus of 30 years before, they still avoid any reference to the history of philosophy and denigrate anyone who starts telling you about the history of philosophy rather than encouraging you to practice the work on yourself, which is philosophy. Now, I I should... Look, I am a historian of philosophy. Um, And as... As you can see, I am also a, a, a rather passionate admirer of Wittgenstein. So this is something about this situation that is sort of embarrassing to me, that I'm a Wittgensteinian historian of philosophy, and Wittgenstein thought that historian of, historians of philosophy were a waste of space. Well, let me broach this issue first by referring to a book which appeared in 1949, and which has ever since been regarded as a kind of substitute for the one that Wittgenstein was never able to finish and left unfinished when he he died. And it's much easier to understand than Wittgenstein. And it's Gilbert Ryle, The Concept of Mind, which came out in 1949. Um, And uh, Ryle didn't mention Wittgenstein, but everyone knew that he was trying to present in a way that students would be able to understand, or that the public would be able to understand, the essence of what he took to be Wittgenstein's new, revolutionary new method of philosophy. And the way Ryle introduces it is, he says, we know by practice how to operate with our concepts, but we get muddled when we try to explain them explicitly. We misread the logical geography, as Ryle put it, and we stray into the nonsensical wastelands of metaphysics. And he made his point by a little excursion into the history of philosophy. Mental language, this is the basic argument of Ryle's concept of mind, mental language essentially comprises hypothetical statements about observable behavior. So, for example, if you say that someone is sad, you're not saying there's something going on in them called sadness, but you're saying that if they went, you left them on their own, then they would lie down and weep, or something like that. Sort of, if it's a, you're not saying something categorical about what's going on in their heads. Um, and Ryle's argument was that in the 17th century, Descartes had come along and got this logic of mental language wrong. He thought that mental language was categorical statements about what's going on in your head rather than hypothetical statements about how you're liable to behave. Um, and that's, that's how people ended up thinking of the mind as 
in Ryle's word, a queer place inside our heads or a ghost in the machine. And for the following 300 years, everyone had surrendered helplessly to Descartes' myth. That's the gist of Ryle's concept of mind, which was widely praised. Um, it was Times Literary Supplement called it the most important book of the decade. And an American critic said what everyone really thought, that it is an excellent exposition of the Wittgensteinian method. Well, as I'm sure you can anticipate by now, Wittgenstein was not impressed by this exposition of the Wittgensteinian method. But he said he couldn't be bothered to argue with it anymore. I can't say that Ryle's book worries me, he said. Perhaps it ought to, but it doesn't. Um, and anyone who attended his classes in Cambridge and anyone who reads his later writings will, I think, un understand how very different Ryle's approach is from Wittgenstein. If Wittgenstein had decided to discuss the concept of mind or the word mind in his classes, you can be sure that he would never have for a moment countenanced the assumption that, that, that it refers to one simple and unchanging thing, the, the concept of mind with a definite article. That he would, have, I'm sure, have said, well, now, there are a whole lot of words here. Let's think what they are. There's the soul, the self sentiment, reason, will. Let's see how they all work and see what different contexts, how they work in religious contexts and how they work in psychological contexts and how they work in educational contexts. And, and so what, I mean, the aim of his teaching really all, always was to say, aha, you thought we were dealing with a simple idea here. Now let's spend a bit of time. We'll see we're dealing with a million different Ideas. So the very idea of the concept of mind would have struck him and any of his devoted students as a, an obscenity. Um, and I think that this difference between Wittgenstein and Ryle brings out something that I, well, I'll put it this way, though Wittgenstein wouldn't have done, that Wittgenstein's work is historical in a way that Ryle's concept of mind is not. Because if philosophy is about understanding the words which we use and the concepts which we have, the language games, as he put it, in which we're all involved, then given that our words and our languages have obviously evolved over time and that different bits of them come from different histories and different traditions and even from different languages and that they still bear the marks of their past. Philosophy in the Wittgensteinian tradition is actually going to be historical. I mean, if you start thinking about how you think of colours, then you have to realise that your way of thinking of, of colours has a history and you have to start thinking about that history in order to understand the meaning of the way that you think about colours. So although... Uh, Wittgenstein didn't put it that way. It does seem to me that a Wittgensteinian practice of philosophy, of this desperate attempt to work out what you really mean by things, is historical because what you mean is itself historical and you have to look into where it came from in order to understand it. On the other hand, that kind of historical Wittgensteinian enterprise is not really any substitute for the history of philosophy as we know it traditionally. It would best be called philosophical history. It's a history of conceptual predicaments encountered by all sorts of people. 
a conceptual history of everyday life, you might say, rather than a history of what philosophers do when they philosophize. So that's the topic I want to come to now. What could a Wittgensteinian do about to, to you know, let's say to fill the gap in the bookshelf where you used to have books like Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy? What, if you're a Wittgensteinian, would you want to replace them? And to tell you about, after all, Wittgenstein does admit that the great books of the history of philosophy are great books, and presumably they do deserve to be written about in a historical way. But what would be a Wittgensteinian way to write this kind of history? Well, if I'm going to make any progress with this, I think I need to go back to what Wittgenstein told his students um, in the 1930s, um, that there are two reasons for steering clear of the history of philosophy. First, that philosophy is about clearing up your own muddles rather than those of others. And secondly, that studying the ideas of others is enormously difficult, infinitely more difficult than the narrative histories of philosophy would have you believe. And it seems to me that the proper conclusion to draw from this situation is not that we should abandon the history of philosophy, but that we should learn to do it differently and to create a history of philosophy a la Wittgenstein. And I want to make three quick points about that before I conclude. The first is that perhaps for the history of philosophies, histories of philosophy or historians of philosophy need to redefine their subject matter, their field, and to start to focus not so much, or not exclusively, on the highly wrought masterpieces of the great dead philosophers, and to put their focus on the efforts of all sorts of ordinary people, efforts that are sometimes actually masterpieces in their way, ordinary people trying to free themselves from received ideas and to cope with their own muddles. So the history of philosophy should be about ordinary people struggling with their muddles. That's the first point. The second point is that that doesn't actually mean that the histories of philosophy won't mention the great philosophers or the great classics of the history of philosophy, but rather that those will be included in the history of ordinary people confronting with confronting and trying to deal with their their great muddles um, the f great philosophers will be included on condition that we remember that they started their intellectual journeys as ordinary young people feeling uneasy about the conceptual situation in which they found themselves and if we find as we possibly will that the philosophers ended up making disgusting mistakes as Wittgenstein said rather drunkenly at this party back in 1912, if we find that the great philosophers made disgusting mistakes, then I think we will find ourselves thinking, rather than ridiculing them and feeling superior to them and feeling pleased with ourselves, we will try to work out how that tragedy came about, what the, what the line of reasoning was that misled them so much if they were so misled. We will, in short, treat them with some respect. Unlike, it must be said, Gilbert Ryle and his followers, many of whom went on to devote entire careers to scoffing at Descartes and often thinking that they, in doing so they were carrying on the work of Wittgenstein. But Wittgenstein couldn't stand these young men. They were, of course, intelligent, he said, but they were intelligent in a way that was not for their own intellectual good. 
And what's more, this is from a conversation he had in, in the last few months of his life. Um, he said, God, these philosophers, they, they're not behaving like, like honest interlocutors. They're behaving like beasts of prey. They're going out to hunt down philosophers they disagree with and tear them to pieces. Um, tearing up, uh, this is very 40s word, the ninnies of philosophy's past. It's sort of school, school word for an idiot, a fool. They think that, well, they, yeah, they dismiss the, the, the ninny philosophers of the past. But the ninny philosophers may not have had the benefit of borrowed cleverness, but they were earnest about what they were doing. They had problems to which they gave their lives and their hard labour. That these people, Ryle and his clever young men, have nothing to do but debunk things. They are hollow men. They are hollow men sounding. It's not that these people are mistaken in what they say. They may be right. It's that what they say has... They, they, sorry, it's that they have nothing but this show they put on. This show. What a clever boy I am. I can show what a fool Descartes was. Well, very well. These other philosophers made mistakes. I'm still quoting from Wittgenstein's conversation. Very well, these other philosophers made mistakes in earnest. But what are you going to do in earnest? There you are, crowing over the mistakes of earnest men. So... You will never make an important mistake. You won't make an important mistake because nothing is important to you. Good for you. Wonderful. Crow. So that's, in a way, that's quite a turnaround. We started with Wittgenstein in 1912, denouncing the disgusting mistakes of the great philosopher. And Wittgenstein now in 1950, denouncing those who didn't denounce the disgusting mistakes of, of, the, um, of the philosophers. But... Um, it seems to me that, in a way, his core position about philosophy has not changed, um, yet that it's about addressing your own problems. And this brings me to my third and final point about what a, a Wittgensteinian history of philosophy might look like. Why should a Wittgensteinian want to bother with the history of philosophy or with trying to give an account of philosophical classics? Well, one constant theme, I've mentioned it quite a lot, of Wittgenstein's teaching is that it's hard to understand one's own ideas and that it is even harder to understand those of others. Indeed, he once humiliated one of his students, well, I don't know if he humiliated, embarrassed one of his students who invited him back to his rooms in Cambridge in the 1930s and was so proud of having a huge philosophical library, thousands of philosophical books in his student room, whereas Wittgenstein was notorious for only having about two books. <laughs> but he read them very carefully. And, and Wittgenstein said to this... He, and the student had invited him there because he was hoping that Wittgenstein would be so impressed that he'd acquired this fantastic library of first editions and beautiful bindings and fantastic... And, and Wittgenstein said, if you were to take a book seriously, it ought to puzzle you so much that you'd throw it across the room. So rather than treasuring it and getting it rebound and putting it on the... Um, and I think that goes to show that there was something wrong that in 
the back of his mind, Wittgenstein knew there was something wrong with the idea, with his idea that struggling with the ideas of others is a destruction, is a distraction from struggling with your own. What it shows is that struggling with the ideas of others may actually be a method of struggling with your own. That desperately trying to work out, you know, what Locke really meant, or indeed what Descartes really meant. It's not, he says, well, that's, you don't want to deal with other people's ideas, you want to deal with your own, but that's a false dichotomy, because once you're trying to work out what's wrong with someone else's ideas, your own ideas are kind of skin in the game as well. So, I would say the philosophical purpose for a reformed and Wittgensteinian history of philosophy would be not just to create more and more accurate representations of the opinions that people held in the past. It's to teach yourself to think about the issues they talked about, to, to, to think about them more honestly. Because doing the history of philosophy after Wittgenstein means putting your own ideas at risk as well as other people, which, as Wittgenstein might have said, requires not so much intelligence. In fact, Intelligence may be an obstacle. What it really requires is honesty and a great deal of courage. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Jonathan. We have half an hour, 40 minutes for questions, after which people, if they are interested, they can Oh, buy. my goodness. <laughs> That's very optimistic. <laughs> the only copies left in the world. <laughs> and don't throw them Don't around. throw them <laughs> So, anybody questions? Okay, so this won't last half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have one on linguistic relativity. What Wittgenstein would make for linguistic relativity provided, I mean, because obviously there's a historicity in that that you have to acknowledge when you're trying to find the form of something in language. You have to acknowledge the historicity of the language as well. Of course, you wouldn't like your your conception of like your conception of form. Just the word. I mean, if and even that temporality would all be determined by the language. So, I think. Well, someone once said to. And Sam once wandered into a, a seminar. In, he, was, he was quite ill. This was at the end of his life. He wandered into a seminar in Cornell University in, in the United States. And the students saw this old man walking in and wearing sandals. And they thought, oh, my God, this is some kind of old peacenik tramp who has just come in. And they didn't understand why the professor at the front of the room didn't tell him to leave but anyway they, they let him stand and he stayed there for a while and then uh, and then the professor said oh you should this is, my, this is my friend from Cambridge you may even have I may even have talked to you about him this is Wittgenstein and they said and they were absolutely amazed that this this person they thought was this tramp uh, was this person they'd have they'd been getting lectures on and so they they then organized a class where he would talk about things and um, and and then one of them said to him, oh, Professor Wittgenstein, could you say how your thought relates to that of Aristotle? And the, um, William Gass, the, the novelist who was there, uh, tells the story of this and said, Wittgenstein's head collapsed into his hands and there was complete silence. That's to say, Wittgenstein, well, he'd never... 
he was conscious of the fact that he'd never read any Aristotle. <laughs> uh, and he didn't really understand what the question, what, what he could usefully say about it. And I think maybe, you know, if I'm trying to imitate Wittgenstein, I'm not sure that Wittgenstein would... Well, the linguistic relativity, I mean, the trouble with that phrase, I think, as a Wittgensteinian, is that it makes it sound as though you are standing... That, so this is the field of languages, and you can see that they're all different, and that you are looking down on them and comparing them. But your situation is not that you're looking at a language, it's that you're in a language. Uh, and that there's therefore a constant kind of... There's a reflexivity. There isn't a sort of subject-object relationship. So I think... I'm not sure if I've really understood what was behind your question, but I think that um, Wittgenstein would have been worried that that line of questioning was getting you to somewhere where you'd think, oh, well, I can talk about all these concepts without realising that what's really at stake is the concepts that constitute my own sense of myself. Um, do you see what I mean? That it, it's, it's giving you a false sense of distance. But I'm sorry, I, maybe I've completely got the wrong end of what, you were, what your question was getting at. Yeah. Was he equally worried about losing himself in someone else's thought if it was a contemporary? I think so, yes. It didn't... Um... Yes, certainly. And, and, and indeed, he was worried about people losing themselves in his thought <laughs> because um, you know that was you know obviously he thought that his thoughts were on the right lines but he didn't want people to adopt them because they were what he thought he wanted people to come to their own conclusions about it so yeah I don't think it was anything to do with being past or being present um, it, and uh, but the, I mean, the second part of the reply would be that whether you're thinking about uh, Plato or, you know, the latest fashionable young thinker, if you're really going to get to grips with what their thought means, then, as I was saying towards the end of my talk, you yourself have to, you know, get involved and put your own ideas at, you know, have to sort of bet your own ideas on, what's, on, on, on those thinkers. And so, in a way... You, if, if you take the task of interpreting a philosophical text seriously, then whether it's 2,000 years old or two minutes old, it's the same thing. If you do it seriously, then it is going to uh, churn you up. Um, thank you for your lecture. I have, to say, I have to admit that I was somewhat late, so if my question was already addressed, then forget it. But I was watching a YouTube video quite a long time ago. It's actually a two-hour documentary about Wittgenstein and Schumann, and it's about the... Um, Robert Schumann. I think so, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, um, Molly Schumann. And about uh, uh, the history of, of music in Vienna and uh, the breakdown of... Uh, oh, yeah. uh, so the modernity and its breakdowns. In the beginning of the documentary, there's uh, a quote from Wittgenstein, and it says, you know, after the heaps of rubble, there would be the ghosts floating above the ashes or spirits floating above the ashes. 
and it's uh, I, I was wondering um, to what degree Wittgenstein was kind of I, I think on a personal level given he had sort of these neuroses that you know and we have Freud coming about in Vienna around this time of even before the wars um, uh, focused on this kind of the breakdown of the bourgeois psyche or the, the modern of the psyche in modernity yeah um, and to what degree did Wittgenstein sort of self-consciously see himself as out as playing out this kind of like questioning of all that had been of all that was and uh, mm. or he definitely did he yeah. definitely did and, uh, uh, I mean that's just, he was um, he was part of a generation that was very conscious of being a new generation of being a generation born at the end of the 19th century at the beginning of the 20th century and for whom the 19th century was a disaster from which they were moving away a disaster musically and artistically and a disaster politically. And so he did have a sense, um, you know, he read Nietzsche when he was a teenager and he uh, denounced the belief in God. And um, it was, and his parents were very cultivated and didn't, I mean, they were Jews who pretended to be Christians, but actually they couldn't give a damn. They didn't, I don't think they minded that their children were in this kind of revolt, so perhaps it was hard for the children to feel that they were really in revolt, given how hospitable their parents were to it. But um, there, is definite, there is definitely that... I mean, he was born into this generation where most intelligent young people did think, we are the generation who's going to change the world. I mean, there have been other generations like that, I don't know, in... 15th century Florence and probably in 20th century France. But, um, well, it, it, and it, it was in two directions, right? There was a, we're going to change the world and then create like a fascist new sort of solution. And then there was the, the people who could see the, the breakages of modernity and then didn't want to re-inscribe And I would say that Wittgenstein, by the, time, by the time he was 20, he'd become very sceptical about all this language about changing the world. I mean, he did think, I mean, he didn't think that the revolution that Frege had introduced into logic had anything to do with a revolution in religion or in politics or anything else. I mean, I think people have written rather loosely about Wittgenstein and Vienna and said, yeah, well, it was Schoenberg, it was, it was the new architecture, it was Egon Schiele, it was new painting. And I, I well, some people like that sort of cultural history more than I do. And I think that as far as Wittgenstein was concerned, he was so conscious of the need to think things out for yourself and to apply that um, doctrine to himself that I think he, 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 he really tried to get, get away from it. He didn't want to be... He no longer wanted to be part of... I mean, he obviously couldn't, couldn't not be part of the generation he was part of, but he didn't want that to be a definition of what his per intellectual purpose in life was. And in fact, he became sort of socially rather conservative. Um, he never found out how to dress, how you were supposed to dress in Cambridge colleges, but his basic instincts were not those of young revolutionaries, and he got rather dismayed when some of his students joined the Communist Party and started becoming militants. Well... He was interesting about it. He said, well, uh, 
the trouble with becoming involved in politics is that you have to keep saying things that you don't altogether believe. And you have to keep defending it. You have to keep saying yes. You know, what I said yesterday or what our leader said yesterday is 100% right. And you know that it's not true. And I've been teaching you philosophy for three years. And it would be so sad to me. But on the other hand, he said, you know, someone has to do this politics. But it is, it is a sacrifice of intellectual integrity to get involved in it. He wasn't, he wasn't saying don't do it, but he was saying there are costs. Um, so I think, I think the idea that Wittgenstein was through and through a born revolutionary you know, of his generation in Austria is not, is not, doesn't, it's not really true of him as an individual. Well, I thought Justin Gorda's book was really bad, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, and I, and not that it was exceptionally bad, but it was typical of a whole genre of books. And I apologize to people who were at the bookshop yesterday because this is a little rant I went on yesterday about how books that profess to, you know, Philosophy leicht gemacht. Philosophy, you know, philosophy in ten easy lessons. Um, Wittgenstein for beginners. All these books, they have the appearance of being tremendously generous acts of democratization of knowledge, opening it out to the population. But I think they have the effect, they can have quite the opposite effect, which is that they tell the general public these things are too difficult for you to understand, so you have to have Justin Gorda or Bertrand Russell or someone to try and tell you about them. And, of course, you won't really be able to understand it, but it's very nice of these people who do understand it to be kind enough to try and put it in simple terms for you. I think anybody can start reading Descartes, they can start reading Spinoza, they can start reading Kierkegaard, and it may even be easier for them if they don't first read the introduction which tries to place it in the overall scheme of, um, I don't know, the history of philosophy. So I, I'm afraid um, I am rather hostile to that kind of book. <laughs> uh, I, I'm in a art Wittgenstein's contextual theory of meaning. Uh, and the, the danger of that, I think, is that you do get something that's ahistorical, but you also lose a critical psychological and individual stake. It's very easy to forget that you're, you're simply using a model. It's, it's very easy to dealing with something that's objective and incremental. Uh, how, how do you think Wittgenstein would propose uh, a researcher uh, to, to regain that individual stake? Well, first of all, he would say, 
for God's sake, there's no such thing as a Wittgensteinian theory of meaning. <laughs> and then he would do what, I think he would do what he always did with people. He would sit them down and say, could you tell me a bit more about what your problem is? Um, don't use the word Wittgenstein. Don't use the word theory of meaning. Tell me exactly what you're working on, and maybe we can make some progress with getting clearer about it. In other words, the, the very idea of some kind of intellectual panacea, say, or not even a panacea, but a something a bit more local than that. Say, I've, I've got just the thing that will solve all the problems of natural language processes. Um, well, you may have something... I mean, the point is that what's going to be helpful to one person is not necessarily what's going to be helpful to another. And even, you know... Even scientists are individuals... <laughs> <laughs> you know, who approach their work in individual ways. And, um, and, and it, you, you need to respect... I mean, obviously, they are working in collective enterprises in a way that perhaps philosophers are not. But still, you know, the, 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 the little bit where an individual scientist says to himself, that seems a little bit glib, that bit. Or that doesn't... I'm not, everyone says it, but I'm not sure that they quite know. That may be the moment where the next new breakthrough comes. So that I think the only general advice is avoid general advice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I just wondered, uh, Wittgenstein, you know, came up with his ideas in German, and that was sort of his, like, native tongue and his context in which he approached language. And then he goes to Cambridge and speaks to students in English so that it frequently native speakers of English, and he's reading Kierkegaard, and that comes from Dutch, and sort of sees language as this... Danish. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, it is Danish, sorry, um, my apologies. And um, in knowing that all of these thinkers, and even in the way you're talking about philosophy and speech, comes from each of your formulations in your native tongue, um, did he find that he was unable to sometimes, like he, he asks his class to talk about, you know, how do you understand the color green, and um, what do you make of that very conception, or talk about the mind as being these several sub-concepts, um, even that is very, very within language, and the way that your mother tongue is constructed, how did he maybe reconcile the ability to talk about any any other philosophers or even to this group of people who mm. talk about philosophy or ask these questions when maybe their very mode of processing was formed by a different sort of construction? Yeah. Well, I think he would say, let's just talk to people and let's learn the languages. So, I mean, he actually taught himself Danish in order to read Kierkegaard because he didn't think the... Well, there weren't any English translations at the time. He didn't think the German translations were very good. Um, so he lived in Norway a lot, so he, 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 he taught himself Danish to do that, and he, he read some Latin, I'm not sure how he learnt that. Um, and I think he, he thought, well, I'm sure he thought, that linguistic diversity was incredibly useful for intellectual... <laughs> health in general, but in particular for philosophical health, because it, it makes you realise that the words you might have, that, you know, that the words that come naturally to you aren't actually natural, and that to someone who speaks a different language, um, they will seem strange. And so, uh, but I don't think, it, it wasn't that he thought that this set up insuperable barriers between speakers of different languages. 
in a way, he thought there could be insuperable barriers between speakers of the same language. You know, that it's very easy to misunderstand in a way, particularly, you know, he's, um, you speak English, don't you? You know, you must understand what I... Um, um, maybe, maybe we do both speak English, but that doesn't mean that the nuances of what, how we use a, a word coincide. So I think that um, Wittgenstein's sense of it would be that even within a language, even within the language of a small group, there may be fractures, fissures and diversities, uh, which become much more dramatic when you're talking about... Um, whole different languages, but still that that is actually the normal linguistic situation is that things are always falling apart. I would have thought that Wittgenstein would be delighted to discuss that and that he'd be much better placed to do it than me because, um, well, partly because he did actually work in a monastery before he started teaching um, in the, or maybe it was after, you know, sometime in the 1920s, he worked as a gardener in a monastery and he was very tempted by the idea of leading a religious life. He, he wondered about training for the priesthood at one stage because he wanted to be able to talk about simple things with children and he thought if he was a priest he could do that but then the training took too long but it only took one year to qualify as an elementary school teacher so he did that instead um, and I think that he was very conscious of I mean he, he once said you know I'm not a religious person but religion is very important to me and I think that's quite a you know, he often says things which, if someone else said them, you'd think that's not very interesting. But when you know that Wittgenstein said it, you can see that there's actually, you know, he's put a lot, great deal of thought in, into that. I think he did think, well, one of the very few books that he un gave unqualified praise to, I don't know if he ever chucked it across the room, <laughs> was William James's Varieties of Religious Experience. Bertrand Russell was horrified. This was quite, when he was quite young, when he was that, 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 that Wittgenstein was reading this book. That is, you know, it's, it's impossible to... One of the great beauties of William James's book is it's impossible really to say whether William James is religious or not. What's certain is that he thinks that the phenomenon of religion is fantastically interesting and a source of huge richness and enrichment to, to human lives. I think all of that is, is true about Wittgenstein. That's, that's one of the reasons why he was so uncomfortable... I mentioned these people who talk about the end of metaphysics and people who thought that he was the real author of that. It was that he thought you should not, you have to take these religious people seriously. They're saying something really interesting. Sit down and listen to them. Um, don't assume in advance that they have nothing to say. And I'm sure that he would have been interested in the idea of... Um, of monasticism as a way of cultivating the kind of painful self-examination that he saw as the essence of philosophy. Yeah. 
has it been applied this nice idea that, that you mentioned of focusing philosophy on ordinary people? And I wonder this because, for example, nowadays, uh, an ordinary person can have access to a great amount of people through internet, but this hasn't been the case in another time, right? And, and the point with history is that, but history is normally written by winners, governments, and not by ordinary people. So how has it been applied, this idea, back in other days? I'm not sure it has been applied, but I think there are instances of it. Of, of if you're talking about philosophy as this sort of ordinary activity that yeah, ordinary people, well, I think. Point you, you mentioned. Yeah, I think um, it's. I think it happens all the time, that people who may never have heard, even heard the word philosophy, start reflecting on things, start reflecting on words start reflecting on you know everyone tells me that when I die my soul's going to go to heaven and then they start thinking well and who am I going to meet there my mum and my dad and my dad's second wife and my mum's boyfriend and and all their parents who hate you I mean it doesn't you know and you so I mean it's just so there are lots of things that you're brought up to think yeah fine you die you go to heaven and then you can just, and, and you start reflecting on it, and you start to think this doesn't quite add up. And it seems to me that, that that's what I mean by ordinary philosophizing. I mean, you may never come up with some theory of the afterlife, um, <laughs> but you will have at least, you will have realized that something that you grew up thinking was gospel truth is actually something that you can't really understand. And that's, it seems to me, is a, you know, it's a sort of innocent, ordinary experience that any child can have. And a Wittgensteinian would be saying, take that seriously. Don't just say that's a childish thing. Read a, read a proper book of theology and then you will really understand it. So it's probably something to be done. Like giving the voice and focusing philosophy and, and finding answers on ordinary people. Yeah, well, encouraging people to think things out for themselves, to have well, and to have the courage. Actually, I I, I like the way Wittgenstein uses that word courage, that that's what philosophy really requires, because philosophy is a kind of intellectual nonconformism. Philosophy is when you say everybody thinks this, but I'm not so sure, um, and and that can crop up in any field at any stage of life with all sorts of people um, and I think ha, if Wittgenstein had thought there should be a policy about philosophy he would have said the policy should be to nurture the little seedlings of this kind of um, revolt against intellectual conformity Um, so I'm wondering, um, to what degree do you think that Wittgenstein uh, would have believed that he himself had a doctrine or doctrines? Uh, because there are, um, you know, people working in philosophy today who label themselves as Wittgensteinians, and you know, they adhere to certain tenets, like oh, the limits of my language are the limits of my world, or other things that you can attribute to Wittgenstein. Mm. 
But um, the way that you're describing his teaching, he seems to be like a lot less doctrinaire and like a lot more so, yeah. And he, you know, but at the same time, he did like you know produce books. He did produce um, articles, and there are certain things that you can attribute to him. So, like, what, to what degree does he have well, some sort of like a body of teachings? He was proverbially bad at producing books. I mean, he had a contract with Cambridge University Press for 50 years, which he, no, 20 years, I mean, which he didn't fulfil. Um, so the only thing he really published was the Tractatus and. As I said, he'd abandoned it. He thought it was no use, and it was and told Bertrand Russell, do what you like with it, throw it away. Um, so he wasn't a great writer, but he did almost every day. He tore his hair out trying to write things. And then he said, well, one of his sayings was, it is very difficult to make a piece of paper better by writing on it. <laughs> um, uh, so he, he set himself very high standards. He did remain... He was, not a, he was not a falsely modest person. He did think there was something in the Tractatus, which maybe he'd got from Frege and wasn't really his. He didn't want to say it was his rather than... But he thought that he'd put it quite well in the Tractatus. And that really was a new method. And that he he did keep saying, I really think I've done something new. Um, of course, like anything new in intellectual history, in a couple of generations, no one will notice that it's new. Um, you know, Newton struggled to work out the universal gravitation, and ten years later, it was being taught in schools, and no one could see why it had been any. Struggle and, and Wittgenstein said, "Well, you know, if if my ideas do catch on, which is no, but I think you used the word doctrine, and I think he would say, my my doctrine is that we should stop thinking of, doc, of philosophy in terms of doctrines. Um, it's about self-examination, open-ended self-examination. Call that a doctrine if you like." Um, I mean, he couldn't have, he would have said, you know, if you find in my book some theory that you can make use of, I'm not, you know, because you can never tell. Um, people can find things in books that the authors weren't, well, so he wouldn't have said absolutely not. But I think he, people who devote themselves, as some people have done, to explaining Wittgenstein's theories are actually in a rather embarrassing position because he did say the point is not to come up with a theory. I mean, more the point is always to be ready to abandon a theory. That's a very interesting question. Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell oh, you're an engineer. I was. <laughs> Bertrand Russell said this wonderful um, engineer has come to work with me. And it's so wonderful to talk about logic with someone who knows about making machines and knows that either they work or they don't. And if they don't work, you have to do something different. Whereas all the other students, who I suppose were intelligent in the way that Wittgenstein rather disparagingly said, they could go on saying, well, the machine doesn't quite work, but it will work tomorrow, and you just need to patch it up. And so he, I think there is something of that in it. And I think also 
Yeah, I mean, it, it is... Wittgenstein did, did... Eventually, Wittgenstein applied for the professorship of philosophy at Cambridge. It's a very prestigious... Well, it's a fairly prestigious job. Um, and, he, and he thought he had to do it partly because there were problems about his passport. He had an Austrian passport, and he was interested in getting a British passport or an Irish passport. Um, and he thought that applying for a post at Cambridge would improve his chances with the Home Office. And he said, anyway, don't worry, absolutely no chance that these bastards at Cambridge are going to give me the job. And then they did. And he was very um, sort of uh, surprised by it. And he did say, look, how can, how can I be a professor of philosophy when I've never taken a philosophy course in my life? But actually, given his sense of what philosophy was, that wasn't so paradoxical. Um, he didn't think philosophy courses is what makes you into a philosopher. It's being really hard on yourself intellectually. That's, that's the trick. Any more questions? Just wanted to say thank you for the lecture and for someone who's struggling with thesis and Yes, I mean, I think he, he, what really, what he really hated, I mean, he did, he loved being alone. He went, he went to this, um, he loved this cottage on the west coast of Ireland, which really is extremely isolated and wild. And I think someone came and brought him his weekly supply of baked beans every week <laughs> he didn't eat anything else uh, he didn't want to complicate things um, and, and the guy who brought in the baked beans did say you're a professor aren't you <laughs> tell me about and I think that sort of curiosity he absolutely couldn't stand um, and I think for good reason I mean what, what is some you know or the proverbial taxi driver saying okay you tell me you're a philosopher tell me what that's about and I think Anybody who comes at you with that kind of question is not really expecting to learn anything. They're expecting to be made to feel superior in some way. And, um, but I think uh, he, was pre- he was prepared to talk to absolutely anybody, probably with the exception of professors of philosophy. <laughs> I'm just wondering what the difference you think is between the line of questioning that the, proverb, the proverbial taxi driver you mentioned would be versus the line of questioning that a child might take. I didn't quite get the difference there. So I didn't hear the question. The, the difference between the difference a, a child's line of questioning, questioning yes, and, and the proverbial taxi driver that you mentioned. Like, did the person uh, I th- well, I th- well, okay. That the proverbial taxi driver is trying to uh, humiliate you. Um, and the child is just honestly curious. Well, I mean, there are taxi drivers and taxi drivers. I suppose. <laughs> um, but it's a sort of banter in which, well, it's a style of conversation in which you know all of us engage ninety percent of the time, where we don't really, we're not trying to learn anything. We may be trying to defend ourselves, 
We may be trying to prevent ourselves from being made to rethink our own ideas, that sort of thing. Um, and I, I suppose that's the great danger that the, that, you know, what I was saying rather abusively about, I hope there are no taxi drivers in the room, I apologise if there are. Um, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's the person who thinks that, a that the purpose of a philosophical conversation is to, is to win, that it's a battle and that you want to be the victor. It's not. It's a conversation from which you hope to learn something. No more questions? Okay, then we can <laughs> wrap this up. Two final things before we thank Jonathan. For those who came a little bit late, you can register for our newsletter here. There's a pen and a piece of paper. And for those who want, you can buy the book. And I read it all from <laughs> A to Z in that order. And it's really extraordinary. <laughs> so thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. <laughs>